podcast is brought to you by Are you easily offended? Those people having an opinion opposite of yours absolutely make your ass hurt. When people shit on your favorite pop culture brands, does it make you want to go postal? Do you feel the need to throw a fucking temper tantrum whenever people don't like the same things that you do? If you answered yes to any or all of these questions, then the Cheeky Bastards podcast is most definitely not for you. So we highly suggest you grow the fuck up and go fuck yourself. On September 6, 2022, if you're not some pearl-clutching candy ass who needs to speak to a manager every time someone has a different opinion than yours, or if you're not some limp-dick movie bro who gets queasy at the idea of somebody taking a shit on the films they also fucking did, then this just might be the podcast for you. So go grab a box of fucking tissues, grow a set of fucking nuts, and join us this fall for some hot takes that are guaranteed to chafe some fucking asses. Welcome all you QT faithful to your 11th Tarantino Bible study, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the major scenes from this month's movie. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to finally be able to welcome to the show the host of the Metal Court Nerds podcast, Mr. Sean Mott. And together, we will be taking a deeper look at the Gospel of Tarantino as we turn to the Book of Inglorious Bastards, chapters 2 and 3, the Glass of Milk scene. Welcome, Mr. Mott, and may Tarantino be with you always. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am very stoked to talk about this scene in particular with you it's gotta be one of the best up there period <laughs> well it's considered by him as his best he's ever written which we'll get into you were supposed to be on this show for kill bill which we are now well we're recording is currently being <laughs> dropped and when this comes out will be two months later but you were supposed to originally be on and unfortunately we had some scheduling conflicts so you are the mysterious person who was unable to make kill bill which ended up turning out perfectly fine awesome. because i was able to find two other gentlemen who've been on and it worked out so as of this recording, your wife's episode will have already predated this, so she will have been Hell on, yeah. and she did my death proof, which was fantastic. I finally had a female guest, and now I have another American guest. Like you're like a diamond. You know, we don't have many American <laughs> guests on this show. I, I don't I don't know how that worked. I don't know how suddenly I had a bunch of uh, foreign guests come on, but you know, I'm appreciative of anyone who wants to be a part of the Tarantino verse. But why don't you go ahead and tell us about your podcast, the Medical Nerds Podcast? Because I didn't really ask your wife about it because. She was a contributor, and she did give us a little info, but I figured I'd come to the source 
for the information. So feel free to tell those in the Tarant universe what the Metalcore Nerds podcast is all about. Yes, the Metalcore Nerds podcast is a podcast that combines pop culture and heavy music. I take people from the heavy music or alternative music scene or even the podcasting scene, and we talk about the latest and greatest of pop culture. Usually we have a main topic, which is very relevant to something that has come out, whether it be a movie or a streaming show or anything like that. But before that, I have like a song of the week that I play, and it's usually lesser known bands to help get them more exposed exposure and then we go into like current pop culture news and then we go into now watching section which me and the guests talk about what we've been watching in the past like week or so usually and the podcast comes out a week so i talk about what i've watched in that week whether it be a movie whether it be another show anything like that so it's just like a really nice look into people that you might know from a band you like of a different side of them that you probably don't even know about and uh that's just been my view from it from the jump and now it's just come to a point where it's gotten a lot easier. It's on Adobe Radio, which is an internet radio station. It's really easy. You can just go to adobe.com and listen on there. Or there's an app you can download. It debuts every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern. But if you can't catch it live, it's just on every podcast platform you can find. Just search Metalcore Nerds or go to metalcorenerds.com. You can find all the links to all the social media, merch. Everything's right there. Very easy. Nice. Now, your wife mentioned that you started this. Well, she was starting a Twitch yes. stream that she just kind of stopped. And you just came, you know, during uh, the COVID break, you decided to start Metalcore Nerds, which, you know, uh, as you know, my former partner, Matt, and I had started a podcast many moons ago. feels like now around the same yep. time. And obviously, we jumped from, but we actually happened to record our two first episodes before COVID oh. hit. So it was just very strange timing that we recorded. And all of a sudden, like, <laughs> Everyone was home, and so we we're like, "Wow, we really picked the right time oh, yeah. to think about doing this because we put a lot of time into it. I had more free time. So, what was it that finally made you say, "Hey, I'm doing a fucking podcast. This is what I'm gonna do." So, I work in the music industry. I used to work as a booking agent. Now, I just do freelance design for mostly music. I work for a variety of uh, promoters, management companies, stuff like that. Uh, but I used to be a booking agent, so. Once the pandemic hit, I didn't really have much to do. And a lot of my work, even design-wise, I did both work for myself. You know, bands weren't touring. They don't need tour ad match. They don't need merch designs because they're at home. So I didn't have much to do, especially in the beginning. And like like you said, Sam was like, I'm just going to start a Twitch thing. I, she was obviously furloughed. She works in a mall, so she did not have any work to do either. So she's like, I'm just going to stream me playing Animal Crossing. And she did for a while, got affiliate, and then just quit. But when she said that, I was like, oh, maybe I should finally start a podcast. Because I've been listening to podcasts for, I don't even know, like 2017, 2016, somewhere around there, maybe 18, in that range. Before they like super, super blew up. I mean, they were still very, very big before everyone started getting into them. And it was I found a wrestling podcast and I found a Marvel podcast and I found like just an overall pop culture podcast, box office podcast. Like it kept just... As soon as it started, the snowball kept growing. And I always kind of wanted one, but it's hard because the type of personality is if I'm going to do something, I want to do it right. I don't want to do it half-assed. I want to make sure it's like quality, everything like that. And I finally just come up with the idea. I was like, oh, like what I explained before, I was like, I can combine the two worlds that I kind of love the most out of my hobbies. And I had already had a lot of friends who were in bands that were either semi-popular or pretty popular. And I was like, hey, I know you're into this stuff. Do you want to come on and talk to me about it? And they're like, yeah, let's do it. And as soon as I started doing it, other people started reaching out to me. And then now it's evolved to a place where PR people email me and they're like, hey, this band is into this. Can you have them on? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> crazy. It's 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 nuts. But that's pretty much how it started. I, I was just like, ah, I might as well give me something to do. 
because <laughs> I don't have much to do right now. You know, we were all stuck <laughs> inside. And I was like, yeah, I'll start, yeah, I'll start yeah. a podcast. So I hit up my friend to write the intro music and the, the outro music and hit up my other friend to do the logo. Even though I do design, I kind of wanted to include a bunch of my friends in the, in the process. And, you know, then I had all yeah. my first guests were like all pretty good friends of mine. So it was all like a nice collaborative effort to jump. And now it's just now I've met new friends. It's like I just saw End last night, which uh, this last night, by the time it comes out, will be months ago. But I saw End and Misery Sickles and Comeback Kid. And I had the guitar player of End on the podcast a long long time ago and i saw him at the show and he's like oh holy shit he's like i didn't think you'd come to this like all the way in you know in massachusetts i was like <laughs> oh yeah man i was like you know it was like a whole day thing or whatever but you know it's like now i have friends like that which i used to get with touring so it's like now podcasts is like replace this this whole like weird touring yeah. thing where i can or even being an agent i would go to fest and see meet new people see a lot of old friends and podcast has kind of given me an, a new avenue in that lane which has been really fun and really cool so i guess that's it <laughs> it's just a great way to i always feel like podcasting is kind of like clarence and alabama when he tells her like he likes to go get pie after watching movie. it's a way to just sit down and talk with people who have a very similar interest and just geek out and have fun with it you know like i like you're saying i've met people across the pond people i've never have met in my entire life without doing this yeah. so it's just it's just been fun like i i just do it because it's, it's enjoyable to sit down and talk with people about things you like and just have a good time and you know it's a, it's a nice community of, of camaraderie that you get a chance to to meet new people and honestly that's the reason i do it. i love talking to the people i get to talk to and if people listen to it's fantastic if they don't i still have that yeah, memory of course and it just you know it's a good time so. so you have these conversations anyway so yeah right exactly so <laughs> i mean yeah might as well do with other people yeah. you know <laughs> and and people as they drive to work listen to us and be like wow it still blows my mind that people will list the, you know, oh yeah, you do this. Or I'll get people to reach out to you on, you know, social media. And you're like, like, really? Like, wow. Yeah. That's just, you have something nice to say to me? It's like, I'm not expecting no. this, you know? I'm just, <laughs> I'm just glad you're not telling me to go fuck myself. <laughs> you're like, why are you talking still? You know what I mean? It's kind of like, well, you really like the show? Like, wow. You know, like, I don't even know how to accept the compliment sometimes. You're kind of like, wow. Never expected anyone to, to, to really tune in. So it's great. Yep. I feel the same way. And now it's time to open your Tarantino Bibles to the book of Inglorious Bastards, chapters two. And three. We are here to talk about Inglorious Bastards. Now, before we jump in, I didn't ask your wife this. I probably should have, but she she said like a lot of her uh, fandom of Tarantino sometimes can be whatever she's just recently watched. And the night I recorded with her, she had just watched the night before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So at that point, she felt like that may have been her favorite movie. So that which is a very understandable. Where does this movie fall into your Tarantino top nine, whatever you know? Where where does it fall in for you as far as your likability? and favorability much like her it could change depending on the day but usually this is in my top whether it be one or two if i count kill bill volume one and two that could switch with it it's tough uh once upon a time hollywood is definitely near the top two but it's hard it just it just is you know like it pulp fiction is like I a classic because he makes too. such it's great just, movies it's, it's, it's hard yeah. there's been a few i haven't seen like i haven't seen jackie brown and i think i might be the only one because death proof when she rewatched it for your podcast is the first time i ever watched oh, it really? and I, I don't know why it just slipped by me i think I, I have no idea but even that one that one was really cool i don't think i'd put it over any of those any of like kill bill or uh, inglorious bastards but i think Inglourious Bastards would probably be my favorite. If like you really had to be like, you have to pick a favorite. I think I think this one would would, would oh, be. Oh the well, one. then I picked the yeah. right person. Yeah. <laughs> I picked the right person for the right scene too, because yes. this is as I mentioned on the True Romance episode and the Bible study when we did the Sicilian scene, which was originally Tarantino's. 
pièce de résistance, as far as he was concerned, of a scene he wrote. That was his, he was like, this is the scene. And then he wrote this scene, the opening scene, which covers two chapters because, you know, I almost skipped, I almost said, well, am I going to cover the first part? But yes, I had to. Because this chapter three, when it starts, is when the girls are asked to leave, to go outside. Him him and Mr. Lapidie can talk by themselves. So the chapter before is with he shows up all the way up until that. But the stuff that happens in chapter two is so, like, rewatching it today, I didn't realize just how important that few minutes are of that chapter. It's like, wow. To leave it out would have been a disservice to talking about the whole scene. Because, yeah, we could easily just jump in right to where they just get to the meat and potatoes and start talking. But so much of what Landa is is in the beginning of this moment that without it, I'm just doing the fans a disservice of not talking about it. They're not combined as one giant long scene. Which, folks, as you know, as I will say on the next Bible study, before when the VHS was out, there were no chapter markers. It was just the scene. The scene was as long as the scene was. But now with the advent, when the advent of DVD and then Blu-ray, now obviously digital, they had to have chapter markers because that we could skip through. I don't know why people want to skip through, but apparently, you know, it it was better than fast-forwarding rewinding. I guess that was was. People hated fast-forwarding rewinding VHSs, so this way you could just skip to your favorite scene and always watch it. But 20 minutes is a long time to encompass one chapter marker in DVD. Yeah. So they just, they break them up. And so that's why this falls into two chapter markers. Just wanted to give people a little of the backstory of why that is. Chapter markers were created for DVDs so that the consumer had the ability to move forward and backwards in time on a movie, making it much easier to find a certain scene in a film than its predecessor, the VHS. Did you know Leonardo DiCaprio was the first choice for Colonel Hans Landa from Quentin Tarantino, but he decided that he would prefer a German-speaking actor instead. In fact, Quentin Tarantino was considering abandoning the film while casting searched for someone to play Colonel Hans Landa, fearing he'd written a role that was unplayable. After Christoph Waltz auditioned, however, both Tarantino and producer Lawrence Bender agreed they'd found the perfect actor for the role. Christoph Waltz. I don't know who this man was before, but I will never forget him for as long as my days go. And when he's not in a Tarantino movie, I'm kind of like, I wish he was in a Tarantino movie. Like, I really... You know, I know it's terrible. I'm just like, he is so good. It's like him and Sam Jackson. I could watch them just do a movie by themselves. Yeah. Obviously, we get them in Django, but I could just watch the two of them together in a buddy comedy, for God's sakes, directed by Tarantino. I would just fall in love with it because, man, not since Sam Jackson has anyone delivered the dialogue that he writes like this. And it's just... It's insane. (laughs) <laughs> he is amazing. Thank God for him. Thank God for him. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we moved past Leonardo DiCaprio being yeah the, the guy because he's amazing as, as Candy. He's he's an amazing actor, but I don't think he could have pulled this off. Like no offense to him, but it's not a very Leo no. type thing. You know what I mean? I don't know that anyone besides Christoph Waltz, and I know that's uh, wow. Really, you made that. <laughs> you made that. You know choice? who could have pulled this out? off? I think who? Willem Dafoe. Yes. It's just the being able to speak four languages. Yeah. He might have brought it a little over the trick. top, too. There's such like a crazy subtleness and, and build with what Christoph Waltz yes. does that's so utterly insane of how he can even pull it off yes. that maybe Willem might have gone a little too over the top, which is kind of like a Willem thing, you know? <laughs> but for some reason, I can picture him in the role. I don't know. I, I just watched The Northman, so I, like a few, like a month ago. So maybe that's like in my yeah. mind. But he was also very crazy <laughs> in that, too. So I don't know. <laughs> I always feel there's one person I would want to see in every role, all the famous roles. And it's because of the way he speaks. And that is Christopher Walken. <laughs> 
I would love to see Christopher Walken's take on every major role, like every major role you think of, like that has a great like line oh, or great man. monologues. I want to hear Christopher Walken's take on him because I just love the way he delivers stuff, and I just think it'd be so joyful to hear Christopher Walken do what you name it, female, whatever it is. I would love to hear Christopher Walken just do that. Like he should just be audiobook reading only because I would be so enamored. I don't. Even, he could read the phone book. I'd be like, oh, how's he going to pronounce this thing? How's he going to deliver it? Because I just love Christopher Walken the way he talks. So he would be the only other person I would just love. And he's, you know, he's up in age. So obviously we don't have, I don't know how much longer we got with him, but he's a treasure, folks. Rap and bubble wrap. Now, this movie, in my opinion, and you may agree or you can disagree, has the most tense opening of any Tarantino film. I don't, the most of them don't open up too tense. They, you know, we get some good delivery, some good dialogue, and all of a sudden, like some stuff surprises us, or, you know, we great, usually character building. But this opens up, this is a spaghetti western set in World War II. You know, he's out chopping wood. Oh, no big deal. No, there's not even any real music. And one of the daughters out hanging clothes. And then all of a sudden, we hear what sounds like an engine coming this way up in the distance. And she grabs that sheet and pulls it. And as she does, the music kicks in. And there's the convoy coming our way. You're just like, holy shit. Like, instantly, as a viewer, you go, oh, man. Shit just got real. You're just like, you, you feel nervous. You're like, I don't know what that's about. <laughs> But it's not good, you know, because it just said yeah. occupied Nazi Germany. You're like, All right, this is not fucking good. Whatever's about to happen. I can feel it already. The man's chopping wood. They're hanging clothes in the countryside of France. And the cars are coming away. And that cue just, as the audience, we go, oh, fuck. This is not some pretty day in France. This is, shit is going to go sideways. And we don't even know why. You know what I mean? Like, the first time you see it, you go, we have no idea what's about to happen. Right. All we know is this is chapter one, occupied uh, Nazi yeah. France. That's it. That's all we know. We know this is a movie about the bastards. We're thinking, you know, like That's it. when you first go to see it, you're like, oh, this has got to be about Brad Pitt and his people. So what is this about? Like, you know, like, are, are they hiding out here? Yeah. Like, when you first come in, you have no idea the depth and the gravity that you're about to fucking find yourself in. And the unimaginable choice that a man's going to have to make later on in this scene. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, but it's that moment when he sits down. Again, I know this is. Uh, Sorry, uh, could you say that again? Fucking Siri. She doesn't hear me when I ask for her. And I say something and the fucking bitch answers. Unbelievable. <laughs> I know that this is a Tarantino podcast. And obviously, I'm going to gush all over him. But it's because the man knows how to direct and write. He knows how to set the scene. Yeah. And there's Mr. Lapadite sitting down, wiping his face. And he's got the look of a man. It feels like a gunslinger is coming to meet him. He's gonna. It's going to be the showed up the OK Corral. He's been like on the run forever. And finally, the jig is up. And they found him. And he's just come to terms with it. And he's sitting there. And he's going, all right, this is going to be my last stand right here. He's got that feel to him and that look when he's sitting there on that log, wiping his face off. And again, like I said, we as a first-time viewer, we have no idea what's about to happen. But you can feel already in 30 seconds the gravity of the tension in the air. You're just like, oh, shit. You know, he tells his daughter to stay inside. I mean, obviously, we know the Nazis are coming. But there's, it's more than the Nazis are coming. You know, it's it's something else. There's, it's doomed. Like, uh, yeah. almost like death is on the horse, is on its horse, and it's coming up the drive. And we have no idea why. Like, obviously, as you watch it more, we know who's coming. We know who's in the fucking car. We know it. We know who the fuck that is. Yeah, but at the time, you just you just sit there and you go, God damn, this is... It's just genius and it's 30 seconds into a film. 30 seconds into a film. We have no idea what's happening, but we already are, <laughs> yeah. you know, assholes are puckered tight. And, like, you're feeling uncomfortable. You're kind of like, oh, 
You know, like he's like, Jesus, this is. It's like that calm before Saving Private Ryan when you know they're about to go to the Super beach. Super tense. And they're just sitting there and they're in the boat and Tom Hanks' hand is shaking and nothing started to explode yet. And you're just like, like you feel like, oh, fuck, like your heart rate is up. You're like, oh, anxiety's kicking. Like, I don't, why am I watching this movie? You know what I mean? Like, you have, it's just a great way to set up a stage without us even <laughs> yeah. having really a single line of dialogue or any, there's no foreshadowing. There's no, you know, scroll that tells us why it's happening. It's just, it's 1941 and Nothing, you're in occupied yeah. <laughs> uh, France. The Nazis have occupied it and we just know where we are. So, and we haven't even gotten Hans Landa getting out of the car yet, which again, he's such a innocent looking guy. Like he gets out all jovial, almost like he's like, hey, I understand that you're Mr. Lapidite. I just want to see your farm and you've got great cows and, you know, I'm a big agriculturalist myself. Right. You know, you feel like he's just there to be real friendly. He's just very unassuming, but he's also very disarming because he's yep. such a coy, cerebral assassin that... When the first time viewer, you don't know, but the more you watch, and then if you go back, like if you did today, and you go back and you watch the scene, you watch a couple times, and you just really watch all the nuances, you're like, holy shit, how did I miss that the first few times you watch it? You know, like all the information is in front of me. Yeah. What was your first feeling when you see this? Like, we haven't even walked in the house yet. He's just he's just pulling up. Yeah, like you said, it's like a massive cold open. And again, agreeing with what you said, a lot of Tarantino movies they kind of start slow and kind of crescendo and some kind of like big crescendo. Not not always, but that's kind of his his for, it's kind of his forte. You know, a lot of build into like a huge payoff or something of that nature. So it's like this really cold open. You can feel it's tense from the jump. I remember the first time I saw this, I saw it in theaters. I was I was in college and I went with like a bunch of friends. And I just remember watching it in theaters. It, more so, the scene that stuck in my mind is. is is the movie scene mm-hmm. more than anything but i mean that that makes sense Rewatching that scene it was like a weird thing where i was like oh yeah it's the guy who plays zemo is in the movie <laughs> and i was like I, I wouldn't have known who he was then before i watched it so i was like oh yeah now i obviously now it circles back and i thought that was funny but like you said exactly you said it's like just tension it's such this crazy build of tension which is mostly just done with pure actions like even like before this there's no even words it's just you know you're in france you're in this nice quiet farm town and then boom nazis are here you know and you're just <laughs> like okay some shit's gonna go down we, like, we have no idea and just the fact when he starts talking it's just like you said it's like very inviting he's trying to be your friend kind of thing and then just the way he kind of switches almost on a dime but it's not really like a dime because you still feel the tension build but he flips on a dime more towards uh mr lapertite like he just yeah. he flips right right into what he's there for but just the way he builds into that is so insane and and masterful and even like the music rising with when he's mm-hmm. talking it's just it's just perfect like you like even me watching i was like i know what happens <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know watched but it like still tense, a million yeah. times we were like oh man like it's crazy that something like that can still and that's a very rare thing in movies in general that they make you feel the same way or they make you feel even more after the fact because usually yes. kind of the novelty wears off and you're like ah, i know what's coming whatever but when they can still bring you back to that feeling you had or enhance that feeling that you had yeah that's like why movies become your favorite movies because you remember yes. these things and you're like it, it's all about the experience you had while watching it and i don't know it's just like something about this movie especially this opening scene which when i was doing a little bit of research today the screenplay of this part was like 17 pages or something <laughs> yeah something, something like, like that. that yeah since, and it's like yeah. more it's almost more than like the whole movie or something like like i was it was like a major portion of the whole screenplay for the whole movie and i was like wow i was like that makes sense but like that's crazy well, think about <laughs> that this is, is one chapter 
of the film, and it's the whole chapter. It's this one scene. Oh, right, right, You know right, what I mean? Right. Like, so chapter one uh, you know, occupied uh, Nazi France, which was originally going to be the title of the film. And then he changed it huh. to Glorious Bastard and made it the title of this chapter. It's all this scene. He comes to the house, and they go and they have the conversation, everything that happens, and scene. Then we go to chapter two, which is the bastards. We meet them. The so, bastards. And then the bastards have a bunch of scenes that we go through. This right. is one scene, just one whole thing. And it's 20 minutes long, but... When he gets out of the car, as we're going to ratchet this up, never noticed this till I was rewatching. And this happens all the time because you, as a fan, you watch it, you love it, and there's moments that you obviously are going to uh, pick out because they're right in your face. And it's the moments I've been trying lately, especially since I started this podcast, to really look at the small moments, the devils in the details, as they say. And one of the details I grabbed today was he asked him, "Would you invite me into your home so we can have a conversation?" And he says, "Yes, after you." Seems like a very throwaway thing, but instead of walking in front of Mr. Lapidee, as Mr. Lapidee is being a gracious host, after you, you know, you, you go first. He just gently grabs his arm and they walk up together. He never allows himself to not be in the position of power in that moment. He doesn't walk ahead of Lapidee. He's never turning his back on Lapidee. He is walking side by side with him, bringing him up. I know that seems like a very, but it's not. It's intentional. That is an intentional move by Hans Landa to always be in control, even though this man is asking him to come in. But he, if you think about it, Hey, would you invite me in? He's not going to just force himself in. He's going to be invited in. Right. It's almost like you're going to invite me in. I'm saying right. it very nicely. I mean, you know what I'm wearing right now. We can do this two ways. <laughs> I can be polite. Yeah. Or we can do this the hard way. You're going to like the polite way. And so it's just that small little detail. And if it's not an important detail, Sally Menke, a great editor, and Tarantino wouldn't have held on that. Wouldn't have allowed right. that moment to end like that where he ushers him in. We, we, you know, he doesn't allow him to go, no, you go ahead for me. You know what I mean? He, nope. We're going to go side by side. I'm not moving out of a position of power with you. I'll walk up with you, but uh, you will not be behind me. I will always be having that, you know, if I need to, I will be the one who can make the strike and not you. So it's just like, holy fucking shit, you know? And again, wow. I've seen it a hundred times. And, and today I was like, that son of a bitch pulled him along with him. I was like, damn, that's such a smart little, like, without even thinking, like, yeah, man. And then once I noticed that, I knew I was like, okay, there's going to be breadcrumbs throughout the rest of this moment. And of course, there is. And he walks in. It's Hans Landa. And instantly realized not a single word he speaks is unintentional. Every single thing he says is him playing a game of I have a suspicion and you're going to give up the goods and you don't even know you're going to give up the goods. And before we ever sit down, he already knows that they're hiding, which we don't know what he's there for, but he already right. knows that there are Jews under the floorboards. And you're just going to tell me what I already know, but I'm going to find out. And I don't remember the actress's name, but she was in the most recent Bond film. She plays Charlotte. She is the first daughter that he says something to. <laughs> I, again, I don't know how I missed all this stuff, but he is talking to her, and they're all standing there, and he says, Mr. Lapidit, the rumors I've heard about your family are true. When he says that, they do a close-up on her face, and her face, no poker face, gives up that she is tense. All of a sudden, you can almost see like her asshole pucker, and he sees it. And he knows, he goes, mm. right. he said it intentionally. And then he goes, each daughter is more beautiful than the next. Just completely drops that line intentionally and then adds some sugar on top of it to make it seem like yep. it's just me being polite. I'm just a polite little German man who just happens to be doing a job. You know what I mean? Right. He's just such a fucking cunning little bastard. <laughs> and it's important because 
he locks in on Charlotte now. When he says that, and he turns his head and he says, more beautiful than the next. If you watch it again, he turns back and looks at her, and he has got a look of distrust and almost an anger. Like, his face is not the same when he looks back at her. Almost he gives her the facial expression of, I know, bitch. You know, like, he almost has got that. Like, he, I mean... I've seen, like I said, I've seen a bunch of times. Today's when I really was like, oh shit, wow, he is, he is, as the kids say, he is mad dog in her. Like, he is like, he's got, he's honing, he goes, he's like, if I have to, you're the one who's gonna break. Like, almost like, I right. got you. And then there's a very, you know, ah, pleasantry, sit down, could I have a glass of, get him a glass of wine. No, I have a glass of milk. Susan's the daughter who walks by and he grabs her by the arm. Where he grabs her, it's not by the wrist. He grabs her high enough so that he, when he's holding, if you watch, he's got his hand in a way that he can feel her pulse. He is holding under her arm, talking to her, feeling her pulse to see if her heart has been elevated. To check a person's pulse on their arm, a person should place their index and middle finger between the bone and tendon over the radial artery, which is located on the thumb side of the wrist, exactly how Hans Landa does to Susan in this scene. So, <laughs> within about three seconds, this man is already getting the answers to questions he's not even fucking asked yet. Right. And that's why I had to include it. I was like, oh my god, if I don't include this, people will eat me alive on this if they already know, you know, if they've been, you know, <laughs> done their research right. so they're gonna be like why'd you skip that part you know what i mean so i don't know if you got a chance to see that and again if you get a chance to go back and look at it even after we talk just re-watch that even that first little chapter before they even start talking and christoph waltz is acting the direction from tarantino and the writing because this is all that description within the page that this is happening it's almost more important than what we're about to hear him say everything he's about to say is going to be like ah no big deal you know what i mean it's kind of like, oh big whatever it's going to lead us into the story but he's already made his determination right. that 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 this motherfucker is hiding enemies of the state and he hasn't even had the glass of milk yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he hasn't even drank a glass of milk and already he knows from the two daughters that he's got he's got him. He's like I already know. I already know. And which lends into later in the scene when he says, you know, if I find irregularities, which be assured I will find irregularities, that's why he says it. Because he already he knew. As I told the person, he is what Paime is evil Yoda. He is evil Sherlock Holmes. Hans Landa is evil Sherlock Holmes. If Sherlock Holmes was a real motherfucker and used his ability to decipher things for bad, this is who he is. This is Sherlock Holmes. Right. Right. <laughs> That's a great comparison. <laughs> the dude is a, a, a master, you know? He, yeah. he, like you said, he like knew from the jump easily. And you can tell, I mean, obviously he plays it out so effortlessly. He drags it out, but it's because he already knows what he already, he's already knows what he wants. He's just like, almost like playing games, yeah. you know? He's like yeah. doing it for fun. Which is even more fucked up, you know? <laughs> He's just like playing around. Yeah, give me some milk. Yeah. yeah. Oh, can I have a smoke? He's like, he's like, <laughs> it's your house. Make yourself comfortable. You yes. know? I was like, damn. Oh, I was like, that's such yes. like a, that's such like a ah, you know? Like, it makes he's you, just like, army the entire inside. time. Yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. a master manipulator. And if you want to know manipulation techniques, that's what it is. Is he puts people? <laughs> he doesn't put them on the back foot. He puts them on an easy foot, on, on, an easy footing. He he right. makes them feel calm. He lets them give themselves up and then once he's got you in the trap he lets you know hey gotcha and that's kind of what happens here and what i remember about seeing this for the first time is that glass of milk when he drinks the whole thing which is so intentional it's this yeah. sk- i've never been more afraid of a glass of milk in my entire i remember thinking the theory like this motherfucker made a glass of milk one of the scariest things ever there's something about the way he just chugs the whole thing. Yeah. It's like he's dominating. Is this your glass of milk? It's like, bang. Like, yeah, bring me another. It's like, you're just like, 
wow. Like, you know, most people just take a sip. Oh, that's really good. And sat down. He was like, nope. Whole thing. This is why he won the Academy Award. He won the Academy Award in just this scene alone. I mean, his rest of his performance yeah, amazing. Oh, yeah, I easily. wonder if they said cut and he was like, we'll just put your name on the statue. You know what I mean? There, it's just like, we already know. Like, the people just send it back. Like, Look, I don't care who else is in the movie. Just put Christoph Waltz on the statue and just and put it on the shelf. It's going to be going to him. Because what he just did in this fucking film, in this scene. This was the first Quentin Tarantino film to win an Oscar for acting. Christoph Waltz won it for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. Christoph Waltz also won an Oscar for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Tarantino's 2012 movie, Django Unchained. Most actors hope to have a scene like that in their career. Right. And this yeah. dude sits down in a Tarantino film. He's introduced to us in this scene where we don't know anybody. We have a Frenchman and a man from Austria who's playing this German soldier. Well, actually, an Austrian coming into Germany. We don't know any of them. None of these people come on screen for the first time in a film. We have no reference for who they are as an American audience. Right. And here they are. And this fucking guy who can speak three languages in the scene. In fact, Colonel Hans Landa speaks the most languages in this movie. Four. English, French, German, and Italian. If you're not a fan, this is why I'm a fan. He's, it's mastery. He surrounds himself with people that he can get the most out of and will also bring their A-game whatever he says action. Whatever is written on the page, they bring it to life. I think... I don't even know if he knows how well people are going to be able to bring his dialogue to life. You know, I mean, obviously, he's, right. he's a very confident writer, and he's like, I, this is easy. Yeah, writing's one thing. Getting someone to, to give a performance to bring what you wrote, you know, real gravity and, and make it last in the lexicon of film is not easy. No. How many movies <laughs> come out a year that just you go, ah, you know, you just pass by and you're like, mm, okay. Yeah. You know? You're like, that was fun. And then yeah. if you think about it like a year later, you're like, oh, yeah, I did watch that. Right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. He did that scene where I think he shit his pants. You know what I mean? Like, you always think about some gag. Yeah, right. It's never like, oh, have you had a glass of milk lately? You're like, no, I, I've got a, I've got PTSD. I can't drink milk. I just, I can't do that, man. I'm, every time I see milk, I shit myself. I can't do this. This is not. I'm lactose intolerant now because of the scene. <laughs> <laughs> I do think one of the most terrifying things of it is that he never gets agitated, never raises his voice. He's no. completely calm and collected mm-hmm. through the whole thing. Like like, like you said, he's it's like the, all this one big like math problem to him or something. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, he knew the answer as soon as he walked in the door. Maybe before he walked in the door. He was pretty sure the answer was right, but he was like, I'm just going to check my work. <laughs> and that's right. when he checked yeah. his work. And he's like, yeah, one plus one still equals two. He goes, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty smart about this. Yeah, yeah. and th- that's like a lot of like scary performances you see, whether it's like a villain in any kind of thing, is like when it's kind of like almost like a spiritual journey or it's just like something they're doing that's, you know, again, they don't get upset. They don't get riled up. They don't get impatient. It's just they they know what they're there to do and they get it done. Yeah. And even when you get like, obviously I'm skipping way ahead, but like no, even in the ahead. ending scene when he's like walking out the door and then the soldiers come in, it's like all super calm, super collected, yeah. super dialed in, like all calculated. It's, it's, it's masterful. It's so impressive. And he only loses it once when he chokes out and kills Von Hamsmark. It's the only time right, he right. loses his cool because she betrayed Germany. That's it. Yeah. Even when Eldo headbutts him, Still doesn't get upset. Yeah. Remember, we check the guy, and he touches his head, and he goes, bam, headbutt. Still doesn't get upset. The man is playing yeah. chess, and everyone else is playing fucking Connect Four. That's <laughs> not even checkers. <laughs> They're playing Connect Four. They're trying to figure out how to, and he's like, I'm playing fucking chess over here. You clowns are over here playing a kid's game. You cannot even good right. at that. He is so, so prepared, yeah. which is an interesting turn because, you know, as you like, we talk about Londa, he will now start to ask questions of La Padita now that they're sitting there. And he says, do you know about me? And I find it such an interesting interesting term because in this section he is absolutely ego filled with people knowing who the fuck he is like do you know who the fuck right. i am it's like that kind of like yeah. that mentality for him right now but when he meets eldo rain who he holds in high regard 
He pretends like he doesn't like the name Jew Hunter, which I find is such a weird psychological turn. When he is in the presence of people lesser than him, he's like, you better know who the fuck I am. Right. When he's in the presence of people who are, he feels are on the same footing, he almost is like, he tries to be humble. Like, you know, look, it, I can't help who people, you know, how they name. You know what I mean? Like, it's a very weird right. turn for him. I couldn't tell if he was yeah. trying to manipulate Aldo in that moment or because, you know, or because he wants to be liked by Aldo and respected the same way. Because Aldo Apache earned his name and he's he doesn't care about the name. Where Right. He does, which is funny because he also says the guy from Czechoslovakia who's called the hangman, he doesn't like his name, but he's like, well, you've done everything in your power. You hang people every fucking second. <laughs> Why are you surprised you're the hangman? You know what I mean? Like, it's just one of those, <laughs> you know, it's such, right. a, such a strange conundrum to see him at the beginning of the movie and at the end. Almost try to be like one of the cool kids you know like in his realm right now at the table right, he's yeah. the cool kid I'm the bad motherfucker but then he's like well this guy's a little cool than me he's like the senior I got. I want to be cool with him so I'm going to be real cool about it and not <laughs> so it's it's so weird to even see this man who's a right. master <laughs> and sociopath still can be broken down a bit by being starstruck I guess is, is a good term of calling what Eldo is in, in his mind yeah probably yeah he, like you said I, I think it was probably more of he wants to be accepted by his peers rather than his inferiors like obviously his inferiors at the very least fear him which i think is yes. probably fine by him but when he's at a level when there's people that are at the same level or higher he's like he's like he wants that admiration you know he wants that justification of who he is kind of thing so it's like when he's like you know when they bring up the name he's like ah it wasn't me yeah. you know like, <laughs> i just do my job like yeah you know <laughs> but you know like like you said in this scene he's like almost bragging about not not about the name particular but like his reputation which is one in the same if, yeah if well because really he starts this part down. with the reputation do you know what i do here and he's like yeah you're hunting down right. all the jews and then he opens the book and this again seems so innocuous again everything he does within the writing and then this performance is completely set up to keep mr lapadi on good footing to make him feel like he's ahead of londa the entire time like he's getting away with it like londa's just another one of those oh, oh all right Looks like everything's good here. You know what I mean? See Thanks for the milk. And when he reads the names, he makes the Dreyfuses last intentionally, which is the family he's looking for. And then he says, you know, what do you know of the Dreyfuses? And, and when Lapetit goes, only rumors. The excitement that he has is because it's another trap. He knows that whatever right. rumor he because and he even he even says it to him. He goes, "Oh, facts can be so misleading. Rumors, however, can be very telling." And uh, again, Lapadite thinks, "I got this, motherfucker. I've got it." And real, he doesn't <laughs> yeah. realize. He's like, "I think I'm gonna get the the next Connect Four. He's like, "No, you checkmate, bitch. I've already got you. Like, you don't even gonna get that piece in." And then he's like, "Okay, now do you remember their names? How would a man?" know every single person in that family's name and their age if they didn't know who they were at a personal level. Right. Like, you live in the city, so obviously you're not living in a rural area. Well, maybe, maybe you know, because you're the only seven people in that area, you might know them all. But how well do you know your neighbors that you know their their names, their ages? You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know their names. Yeah, exactly. All their names. Every single name. And he thinks he's being so coy because you've watched him, and great acting on his part, too. The way he's, he's almost like, kind of, it's almost like he's pretending he's trying to remember, but he never once goes... Uh, was it Igor or maybe it was it Ivan or s something with an I? Like he doesn't even play that part of the game. He gives up names. Right. He has that look on his face like he's trying. He's been thinking about the name, but he know it's like on the tip of his tongue immediately. Uh, in the last one, Shoshana, right. and then of course he says Shoshana, and we get that great crane down. 
to what Hitchcock would call the bomb under the table. The bomb under the table was Alfred Hitchcock's way of deciphering between suspense and surprise as it relates to films. Hitchcock explained, the difference between surprise and suspense in a scene like this. Let's say two characters are having a very innocent chat. Suddenly, a bomb goes off into the table. The viewer is surprised, but prior to the explosion, this was just an ordinary scene of no real consequence. Now suppose you show the viewer the bomb beneath the table, and the viewer has been given information that the bomb will explode at 1 p.m. And on the wall, in view, is a clock, and it says 12.45 p.m. In this same scene, this innocuous conversation becomes fascinating for the viewer because they are now participating in this scene. They desperately want to warn the characters on screen that a bomb is going to go off. The first scene, the viewer was given 15 seconds of surprise at the moment of the explosion, while in the second, the viewer was provided with 15 minutes of agonizing suspense. So he concluded that whenever possible, the public should be informed, unless the surprise is a twist and where the unexpected ending is the highlight of the story. Except it's the Jews under the floorboard. And then at that moment, we realize, oh, shit. Yeah. That's why I've been having heart palpitations for the last 15 minutes. Now I know why. That's why. Because human lives are at stake. Yeah. Jewish lives are at stake. You're like, ah, oh, fuck. Like, I didn't think I was watching a Holocaust movie. God damn it. <laughs> Tarantino, you pulled me into it. And that's the great yep. thing is he just, he makes a commentary on it without it being a movie about it. We all know right. what happens. But he's making it more of a personal. Like, obviously, the atrocities that happen in the ghettos and in the, the concentration camps are horrible. But he's doing this in a way of, like, do you know what they did to ones who escaped and how they hunted them down? Like, they didn't go to concentration camps. They were executed on the premise right then and there when they were found kind of thing. Right. And it's just like, and then it brings real levity to what Anne Frank had to go through. Which, yeah. did you know that... Anne Frank's first cousin is in this movie. What? The role of Shoshana Dreyfus's father, Jacob, who we can see briefly hiding on the floor was the eyes, was played by Patrick Elias, whose father, Buddy Elias, was the first cousin of Anne Frank. So he's like second cousin or whatever it would be, but Anne Frank's distant cousin. And this poor guy, I mean, crazy. obviously awesome that he gets to be in the movie, but they had to be like, hey, would you like to be in a Tarantino movie? He's like, yes. What do I have to do? Well, um, well, uh, you know you how your familiar. second cousin may or may not have had to hide from the Nazis and she did it in an attic? Well, you're going to do it under the floorboards of a French farmhouse. Oh, okay, what happens? Well, <laughs> you get obliterated by machine gun fire, but hey, you know, you're in the movie. You know, it's just, uh, who right. sells, how do you imagine being the person who has to go ask him that? Hey, <laughs> I know this is a little on the nose for your family, but how would you like to play right. a Jewish a Jew captured and shot by the Nazis? <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, you probably thought wow. it was an honor, but there had to be a part where you're like, you know, really? I wonder if they, I wonder if <laughs> he had to be like, really? Like, I wonder if he went home to his family was like, honey, you're not going to believe my luck. I want to be in a Tarantino movie. What are you playing? Oh, boy. Um, an escaped Jew, okay? Um, what happens to you in this story? Well, me and my family hide under the floorboards in a French farmhouse. <laughs> okay. Then what? Well, this polite German man shows up, gets a glass of milk, and then murders all of us, except my daughter who escapes. But I'm in the film. <laughs> She's like, ah. I'm at least paying well. <laughs> yeah, it had to be a weird conversation, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. It's like right on the fucking note. You're like, oh, man, really? But, hey, wow. congratulations to him. He's in a Tarantino film. His eyes are in it. I'm not in a Tarantino film, so. True. Very good point. And Anne Frank is well known. I mean, obviously not for the reason she would like to be well known, obviously. You know. Right. But we see them down there and you're just like, oh shit. And then you think, oh, we're done here. Like you because he even says it, as we're looking at, at Sushana, and before we get the eyes of Mr. Frank's or Mr. Elias and her looking up through the floorboards, he says, We're we're done here. Can I have another glass of your milk? Again. Just a fun little German man just here to have some French milk. And right. even as the audience should go, okay, 
they're going to get out of this. Like, like it's going to happen. They're going to get out of this. My notes are that glass of milk is a celebratory drink so that he can rub it in their face because he is flexing. He's about to fucking flex on Lapidee because then he goes into, do you know what my nickname is? And he forces this dude to tell him what his nickname is. And it's at that moment, all of us should have known, ah, oh, shit, they're fucked. Because everything he says, they brought me down from the mountains and all this stuff. And like, they brought me in. I'm not just some fucking German soldier who came through nine months ago. And I was like, ah, good enough here. We're out of here. This guy's like, I'm thorough, like beyond thorough. When you saw that yeah. crane down the first time, what did you think? What was your reaction? Like, because it's a, it's a, it's a tough reveal. You're like, oh no. Yeah. Pretty much dread. You know, you're like, fuck. But like you said, you kind of get a little bit of a reprieve for a second. <laughs> and you're like, ah, they're going to get out of this. They're going to make it right. And then it all just goes to shit. <laughs> Pretty much. When did you know that they were fucked? At what point in the scene, the first time you really remember watching it, if you can remember, when did you know that I think they're all in trouble? Like even the Lapidee family, like when you go, oh, I don't think it's going to end good for anybody. I think 100% knew they were fucked when he switches to English. When he's like, hey, I'd be more comfortable speaking English. I heard you understand English. And he's like, yes. He like, like nods or he says we. And um, he's like, oh, you know, you're fine with that. And they switch to that. And then obviously that's the later reveal because the people on the floorboards do not understand what they're saying. And that's why he does that. <laughs> in fact, roughly only 30% of the film is spoken in English. The language which dominates the film is either French or German with a little Italian thrown in, which was highly usual for a Hollywood production. And so I think when he starts doing that and like asking like, oh, I heard you're, you're good with English as well. That's like when you're like 100% like they're done for. Like there's no way they're getting out of this. Like he totally has their number. It's done. And, and that's when he kind of really starts wrenching hard on them too. You know what yeah. I mean? Again, in a very calm, collected voice. But that's when he really starts diving into him rather than being very disarming like he was before. Like, this is this is kind of where the switch almost happens. Well, he starts with, uh, do you know my reputation and everything like that? That's that's the beginning of it. But this is like when he really turns on that other side and starts being like, you're fucked, basically, <laughs> in a yeah. way better way to put it. But, yeah, I think that has to be it. His ability to speak French. He was like, oh, you know, I'm just going to embarrass myself from here. Again, it's a, one of those that's like, a, you feel like right. a throwaway line. But the main, the only reason to switch to English is to deliver so the they news don't that know. I fucking yeah. know. And I can speak French all fucking day. Like, I mean, like he didn't have a problem pronunciating a single word. He didn't miss right. a phrase. Like, he was killing it. And Lapidie's like, all right, whatever. You fucking German, you don't have French. <laughs> you know, he's like, Lapidie, get your head out of your ass, dude. This dude speaks French as good as you speak it. Maybe better. <laughs> and right. he has to go to English? Come on, brother. Like, you know, like, like I said, the more you watch it, all the breadcrumbs are there and... Us as the audience and Lapidee as the person being interrogated completely missed that he's fucked. Yeah. Well, we'll figure out if he is or isn't because I have some questions about that. Now, the Jew-rat comparison, that, sto that, that little story, the first time I remember them saying it, I remember hearing it in the theater, it didn't feel out of place because obviously, as he says, you know, it's in the propaganda and I'd heard it before through history class. Like, you get it. You know, like, people always, oh, he's a rat. This, you know, because rats are, as they discussed, are thought of as these horrible creatures, this and that. But I, as I've left it more, I actually, and this is weird, I fall on the side with Landa because you realize that Hans Landa has great respect for the Jewish people, even though he's hunting them. 
He sees them as a very capable adversary. And I mean that with no disrespect. He realizes that as the world the rat lives in, it's dangerous, it's hostile, which is what the Jewish people are going through at this time in history again, but going through it in the 1940s. They have given up all humanity in order for survival. A lot of people can't do that. I think he was even mentioning that about the Germans. They hold themselves so high like they're a predatory hawk, like they're above everybody, that they themselves would never consider to hide. I mean, in Schindler's List, they're hiding in the shit. It's like the things that people will do when they give up, you know, humanity and they want to survive. He was like, you know, the first time I heard it, I was like, oh man, that's that's a tough line to say. And then I was realizing, like, even watching things, like, no, he's 100%. He's bowing to them, saying, look, you're a worthy adversary. I give you great credit to be able to do what you have to do to survive in the horrific world you're in and the conditions you're willing to do it in. Colonel Hans Landa's speech to Lapidie comparing Jews to rats is influenced by a real German film, The Eternal Jew from 1940, made by the SS propaganda team in Poland during World War II. The film was made with the intention of lowering the image of Jews throughout Europe and depicts rats and other animals spreading disease that would contaminate the Aryan people if the Jewish question weren't resolved by their extermination. Tarantino, however, decided to give the part back to the Jewish people by highlighting this comparison as an image of their strength, resilience, and perseverance during these atrocities. It's a real ballsy ability for Tarantino to write that scene, which is why I think it makes it better. And originally, I wasn't sure if I liked this better than Sicilian, because, I mean, they're different scenes. But the Sicilian scene, we lean on historic tropes and people's racism as kind of a funny thing, but a way to basically have the greatest, what I call, mic drop ever. Like, you know you're going to die. He's like, mic drop, boom. How do you feel about being Sicilian now, you racist piece of shit? You know what I mean? In this, he flips it where... It feels like a racist bigot comment, but in reality, he is saying it with nothing but admiration and actually, you know, commends them for their ability in the harshest of conditions, the willingness to survive. So what is your take on that amazing little, which is when we know that they're in trouble, but that amazing little. Yeah, it's like you said, and I even noticed that while rewatching it today is that he makes the comparison. He's like, you wouldn't think that of a squirrel, would you? Because Laverty kind of goes, oh, they spread rats, spread disease, and that's why I hate them and stuff like that. He's like, well, squirrels do the same thing. You wouldn't think that about them. That's like another thing to add to. He's not really dismissing them. He's really actually building them up, which is a very wild kind of perspective that he's building. Like you said, they're worthy adversaries to him which is wild because you would never think that like a Nazi would think that way, especially about the Jewish people, especially after they're treated and hunted down and, you know, completely just massacred. But he does do that. Like, again, he's like, well, yeah, you wouldn't think of a squirrel, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's building him up. It's, it's, it's very interesting, but it kind of plays into how smart this guy is at the same time. You know, it's, he doesn't do this because it's just a job. I think he does it because he like enjoys doing it. And he, th- he almost thinks it's like fun. You know, which is kind of fucked up. But yeah, it's like a it's like a game to him. You know, like how we were talking about, he's like he's playing chess and they're playing checkers, but he's like that's what he loves about it. You know, that he's <laughs> always like a million steps ahead on a completely different playing board than they, than they are, and he, that's that's like the thrill of the hunt is like what what gets him, and it's it's not because they're lesser, it's because it is difficult. Yeah, and that's what he likes about it. He doesn't like it easy. He even though he he likes being a million steps ahead. He still wants to play the game, and he wants the game to be hard. He doesn't want it to be just a, a walk through the park. Yeah, he wants he wants to be challenged, and like that's pretty much what he is through majority of the movie. It, it is it's just like we talked about later how his tune kind of changes in ways from the different circumstances and perspectives. But you know, it's like even when he's got his head up against the wall, he's still being many steps ahead of where he's at. You know, like. Yeah. <laughs> 
dude's making deals when he's captured, you know, <laughs> no. by the other side. Like he's yeah. he's completely fucked and he's still making deals. Like that's <laughs> yep. what the balls yep. on this guy to to make deals for him. Like it's crazy. It, it, it's it's wild. Like but like only a character like this would could pull that off, you know. Again, it's just like a complete mastermind playing playing his game. I don't think he hates the Jews. Like you said, I don't think he has that same feeling. I think he's good at his job. He realizes that he he has a worthy adversary. And I don't mean this as any disparaging mark towards what the Jewish people went through or any of that stuff. Not, you know, like just completely, you know, whitewashing the fact that they were hunted down and uh, and a complete genocide. I'm just saying, as the character of Hans Landa, he's not painted by Tarantino or by the actor Christoph Waltz as just this everyday fit-in-a-box Nazi soldier that we know. It's not. Oh, I hate the I hate the Jews. I'm going to carry out my master race plan, and that's that. And there's no, you know, there's just there's you know there's nothing about the character we need to know outside of that. You know, and, and the rest of the characters in the movie may very well be like that, like Hellstrom and stuff like that may be like that, but not him. He is a hunter, a detective. It's what he does. This is what he is good at. That's why he was brought in. He wasn't brought in to exterminate Jews. He was brought in to round them up and, and find them. That's what he's good at doing. And they're just a good adversary because obviously the ones he had to bring in, they were very good at evading. And so he found that as like, I will find those (laughs) who cannot be found kind of thing. And again, I don't think it had anything to do with them, you know, with their religious belief and and their nationality. It had to do with that as like the game is afoot. Now, I know that I know that kind of, you know, takes out the, you know, the real levity of what was happening. But I think that's who he was thinking and how he was thinking. I don't think he was just like, fuck the Jews. We're going to kill them all. It was like, oh, how many are escaped? How long they've been missing? Right. I will find. You know, it's that. I think it was that mentality. As I mean, it was the challenge. Yes, it could have been anybody or anything at that point. It just happened, unfortunately, be happening in 1940s in France during the Nazis. You know, if it had been 1950s, he would have hunted down the the Red Scare in America. Like he would have been the guy you call on to find whoever doesn't want to be found. He just happened to be doing it for the worst people in the history of the world so far. So yeah. But I love that Tarantino gives him some humanity. He's not just this, you know, cut out version of what we all know of Nazis. He's not just this, you know, not that I'm trying to, don't get me wrong, I'm not putting for mode or trying to say, oh, there's some good, I'm not, you know, who's saying there are good folks on both sides. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. He's not a good person. He's an awful he's, person. Yeah. Yes. But he's just not, he's just not your stereotypical Nazi. You know, he's not the guy has, there's, yes, yeah. there's depth to him. There are reasons. He's not just there to get him because they're, they're Jews. He's there to catch them because they can't be caught. And he finds, whoa. And that's why he calls them the rat because he he truly truly commends them for their ability. I I don't think he could do the stuff that they did to to avoid capture. And I think that's part of where he's like right. I you know like you know I have to still capture you, but it's like you know it's like a good a good uh, fight a good you if you res- he respects his opponent he respects who they are you know but he wants to outsmart them he's going to capture them and they would have evaded escape if it wasn't for Lapidite you know what I mean like unfortunately they found a man who was weak and was easily to be broken. And they were captured not because of their own fault, but because they trusted the wrong person. That's honestly the only reason they get caught. However you want to look at that. But I just really love this scene more and more, that part of the scene, because, you know, before it felt like the first time you see it, you feel like, oof, geez, Tarantino's really, I mean, it is a Nazi character. We're like, God damn, he's, oof, called them rats. And then (laughs) when you really listen to it, you go, oh, he's not, he's not being bigoted or rude to them at all. He's really complimenting them. He really, he means it in a compliment and even, you know, tries to say that and, you know, you just have to be willing to hear it and not just go, oh, wait a minute, no, you know, don't get up in arms and upset. Just listen to it in the context and then go, oh, okay, I actually do see what he's trying to say and, and what he's saying as opposed to like, he's just yep. being a bigot, you know, I don't like bigots either, but that's like, 
listen to what he has to say right. and, 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 and go with it. So that's probably the best part of the entire scene because then... <laughs> Then we get the big dick contest, and it's the moment of levity. <laughs> it is the only moment of levity in this fucking scene, and I I know that Tarantino knew he had to. Like he's like uh, the tension has been since she moved that fucking sheet. Your assholes are so tight you can barely breathe. And again, it's that simple. Can I smoke? It's your own house. And then also, do you mind if I smoke my pipe? Feel free. And he pulls out this big fucking Bavarian recola fucking looking horn. <laughs> you just like, I remember seeing it. Everyone was so tense. It's that moment where you just laugh and you're like, I don't know why I just laughed. This is like, a horrible what? scene, but this is the fucking size of this fucking pipe. I didn't see coming. And even Lepidi, if you look at his face, he's like, even he's like, what the fuck? Like, he's almost like, yeah, like oh, what? that's a cute dick. Wham. <laughs> he's just like, look at this 12 footer. You know, like, where did that right. fucking thing come from? You're like, Jesus Christ. And it just makes, I don't know, it just makes me laugh every time I see it. Just a little giggle because you're like, it's all part of the mind games too. He he knows. He knows that when he pulls this pipe out, no one else has this giant fucking, especially in the French countryside. He knows. Right. I was, he was probably almost like, oh, he wants to smoke in his own home. Oh, and it's the beggar's like, man, I can't wait to brandish my pipe. Because if Lapidite's not smoking, he's not bringing out his own, he's not bringing out the pipe. But when he does, it was almost that last little, not only am I smarter than you, I've got better stuff than you. It's, it's, he just totally owns Lapidie, and he doesn't even know. Like, he he got dunked, and his balls got in his face. He didn't even realize that he just got posterized when that fucking thing comes out. I'm just like, holy shit. It's just, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, I know, it's so dumb. It's such a childish thing to be like, it's a, but it really is a dick contest, ladies and gentlemen. Right. If you're not understanding, it's a size contest, and that's exactly what he's doing, whether he knows it or not. He's like, yep. Bigger dick. It's <laughs> like, God damn, this is. <laughs> but I didn't mean to skip over this. But when you said the squirrel thing, it's also, um, I know it's hard to now circle back after I just said big dick contest. But the circle thing, or the uh, the squirrel thing, I feel is a very subtle way, even in this moment, for Tarantino to be having a commentary on bigotry and racism because. Mm. Comparing both rodents as, and obviously, look, I'm I'm gonna make a stretch, but I feel like this is this is where we're, he was going with it, very very subtly. Rats are generally what color? They're usually black, dark grayish black. in color, Gray. usually a rat, yeah. like a rat, right? Not you know, obviously there's some white ones, and you can buy in the snap, but the if someone you know when you buy them at Halloween, what color are they? They usually black. Buy the rubber ones. I mean rubber ones. Yes, all right. That's, that's I mean if you're really putting real rats out, that's. Kudos to you. You're really going the length of <laughs> Halloween. And then the squirrels are more friendly, softer, gray, red, although they are black squirrels. The comparison was, yes, because this one looks more pleasing to you in your mind, you find it less harmful. But it can do the exact same thing. Same thing. That the one that you don't like the color of and that disturbs you, you put it on that. And the genius of that is Lyanda, the fucking Nazis saying this. He's that's what I right. It, like like that's why you know the context of like it's he's such a nuanced and amazing character. He's not just this like you said a carbon copy of of a, of this Nazi that we all know. I mean, he's giving us a Nazi is giving us a lesson on bigotry and racism and why we look at things a certain way. He's basically describing exactly why the Nazis went after the Jews and why people allowed it to happen for so long. Simple, because you don't know why they discuss you. You just know they do. I remember hearing that against him going, holy shit, like that should be in like, we should be having that in social study classes. That, that's, that's, race, <laughs> that's racism in and of it. Like it literally is the basis of why people suddenly get this race. They don't know why they don't like somebody. They just know they don't like them. And they never, 
go further than that in their steps. They go, that, that's it. I don't like them. That, that's it. I don't know anything about them. Right. And that's that. And all he used was a squirrel and a fucking rat. And I mean, yep. now you know why this is like Tarantino's favorite. Yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed that. I probably for the first time, like the the whole rat squirrel comparison, I was like, oh wow. I was like, I don't think I've ever noticed that before. Or I just didn't remember or whatever. It's been a few years since I've watched watched this scene and well, I mean even the movie entirely. But I was like, oh wow, that's that is a very interesting way to go about it that I wouldn't have thought about until now, I think, probably. But yeah, I mean, exactly. It probably is that. Like I was kind of comparing it to like the adding to like the juice statement, but I, I can see it going either way with an, an overall uh, commentary on race in general. It would make perfect sense because I mean, why not apply? You know, the same principles. You know, it's not, obviously it's not as bad, but I mean, there's still evil and oh yeah, all form, forms of racism. You know what I mean? And to have the Nazi bad guy do be it, the yeah. one. To give the lesson. To bring it up. Which also shows in that moment that, like I was saying, I do not believe Londa hates the Jews because they're Jewish. I believe he's. this is only for him. And this is, again, I know this sounds horrible how I'm saying this, but for him it's a game. For him, it's a game to capture right. them. It, it, like I said, it could have been, it could have been defecting Germans who are hiding out. Like if he had right. been put on the yeah. case to find the to find the um, bastards, he would have tried to find the bastards. You know what I mean? Like he would have gone. Oh, yeah. All the way. So it just happened to be that he was brought in for this purpose because of who he is and what he can do. And he's doing it because, like he says, it is a job and he loves to be he's good at his job. And he would have gone after whoever they sent him after because it's, it's a, yep. the game is afoot. This is what shows that, I mean, he may still hold out bigotry, thought, but, but at least in this moment, he is really opening our eyes to like, he's not who we think he is. He's not the, the archetype Nazi that villain that we are supposed to instantly hate. He's got more, there's more depth to him than just meets the eye. He's a transformer. <laughs> I was like, "Beast Cat Transformers." <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But we're almost about to end this scene because it's the tension is is max, and then this is when his face changes when he starts to talk, and he does this. Now you're not a parent, which, as I've said to other guests, sometimes you're missing out, and sometimes you're not. So <laughs> he pulls the classic, a classic parent manipulation tactic. It's when you tell a child that you know they've fucked up, but if they just come out and tell you the truth, they're not going to get in trouble. It's a classic disarming technique of whether you do know or not, it's a, it's also a great way of finding, you know, if you have a suspicion that they have done something wrong, you can say, I know what you did. If you just admit to it and apologize, you won't get in any trouble. We, we can, we'll move forward. We, we just don't do it again kind of thing. And it takes the kid away from, if you don't fucking tell him, you know what I mean? Like the, the whole aggressive, right. I'm going to beat your ass, all this other stuff that never really works. You know, you're trying to use fear. This is killing them with kindness of making them feel like, you know what? Yep. You, you thought you knew you were in trouble, but I'm giving you an out. They feel like they're getting an out and now they feel more comfortable telling you what they've done. And so that's what he does. He sets them up for it. And when he says you're harboring enemies of the state. It's gut-wrenching, man. Like, I mean, you've got a wife. You've got to choose you know, between kids, his family. Yeah. Basically yeah. telling it. It's basically, look, I already know. Because he says, I will find irregularities. I will find them. And when I do, now you have been harboring enemies of the state. You will be punished just the same. And so in his mind is, I mean, you can see in his face, he's crying. Like, it's gut-wrenching. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's... You can't it's be broken. mad at Lapidate. You can't be mad at him. Like, at first time, no. I think when the first thing I was like, oh, man, what a pe... But, what else? You what is he supposed to do? Regardless, the Shoshan, the Drivuses are dying in three in thirty seconds. In thirty seconds, the Drivuses are dying. Are you joining them, or are you just right. making it easier for me to find them? Which are you doing? 
And it's that moment where it's like we all we are all selling out the Dreyfuses. And that sounds horrible to have to say as a person who, you know, is a champion for people's right who would never want to do that. But at this, but in the in our hum, most human moments, you're selling out your next door neighbors, even if you have, even if you've known them forever and you're great friends and you would want nothing ill to save Sam's life. It's you just you're doing it like it's just fucking happening. Like, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, like you said, it's they're going to you're going to they're already going to die. Are you going to die with them or are you going to live? Yeah. You know, even if it was a situation where it's like maybe you get away with it and you live, you know, it's like you're probably going to take the shot on whatever is going to help you and your loved ones survive. Yeah. Like, it's just how it is. And that's how it should be. You know, it sucks at the expense of human life. But, you know, family is a special thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't really fuck with that. And La Padie didn't realize that he'd, he 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 invited the wolf into the hen house. He didn't know. And it's too late. Yeah. So you want to oh, save yeah. your no chickens? Going back now. <laughs> you want to save your chickens or do you want all the chickens to be murdered because right now your daughters are outside right. with three of my armed soldiers. It, it, he doesn't yeah. have to say this. This is what he knows. Why don't you have your because he says, Why don't you have your daughters outside? My men stayed outside. Like, you're in a rock and hard place. You're giving them up in a heartbeat. Yep. And it's just, man. Oh, yeah. And then he has to point off. Oh, it's, it's such good filmmaking. So you feel so wrenched. Like, I don't know of another scene where I am as emotionally wrenched as this scene in a Tarantino film. You know, like, a, a lot of them play with more levity and you feel bad, but, like, a lot of them is revenge. Yeah, yeah. And in this moment, you're just, you, oh, your heart breaks because you know it's about to happen. And then he does a great job when he brings them in. We're still doing the whole subterfuge and, ah, oh, mademoiselles, I'll do. He doesn't do what some filmmakers might do. We see him shoot through the floorboards. We, as the audience, know what's happening. Our mind is going to create a worse vision of the massacre below than anything he could show anyways. And he doesn't exploit it. We know the history of 1941. We know what's happening right. to these poor people. <laughs> it hits home harder, I think, sometimes. And you're like, you know, like, God damn it. That, that, was, that was intense. So I love the fact that he doesn't show it. Like, you know, we just see wood chips flying up and we never see anyone die. You know, we don't actually see the people underneath dead, which is great. We, we know. <laughs> no one... <laughs> No one's like, well, maybe they missed. You know what I mean? Like, that floorboard is Swiss cheese. It's yeah. awful. Doesn't it blow a hole in the floor? Like a well, total hole, right? No, not a total hole. Like, there's there's enough. Uh, they do a lot of holes around, but it doesn't actually take it out. Okay. For some reason, I thought it looked like a hole in a broad change today. Yeah. I'm about to ask you about what we think happens in the aftermath of this. The La Padis now... I mean, now, I mean, we're talking about France, 1941. This isn't. There's no Home Depot or Lowe's. They're not going out and replacing these floorboards <laughs> easily. <laughs> And right. now, so it's an, always a reminder of what just happened until they can replace them or if they ever do or whatever happens. And now after this is over with, do they just drive off and leave them underneath? Do they pull them out to make sure? Like, you know, like, Ugh. it's just like, exactly. Like, the PTSD that's going to be lasting for that family after this moment is forever. Yeah. You may have to leave this farmhouse. Traumatizing. Like, yeah, absolutely. Then we get Shoshana running out. And this is one of the moments in the film that I wonder why Tarantino wrote it the way he wrote it. Number one, I was in the military, so I'm pretty confident. The range at which she was already ahead of Londa when he steps out and pulls out his pistol, it's very unlikely, outside of just like a magic bullet shot, that he's even able to hit her if he fires the gun at her. Right. Very unlikely at that distance that he's going to hit her. Obviously, some tension. We think, oh, is he going to pull the trigger? And then he doesn't. And in all honesty, folks, it's very unlikely he's going to hit her. Very unlikely. Yeah, maybe. But... 
Most likely not. And it's not going to be like, this isn't a video game where you're going to get a headshot. Like, <laughs> stop. It's not happening. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like in video games, like, oh, he's like a thousand yards away and a gunshot. Like, oh, I got him in the head. Like, no, you, no, no, you fucking didn't. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> the physics aren't there for that. Maybe he gets a body, maybe he's a machine, maybe he gets lucky and he lands one and it gets into an organ and it drops it. Maybe he gets lucky. That's not my problem with it. I don't understand why he let her get away. They have two motorcycles that they came up in. He has right. two men. That could jump on a motorcycle and catch her before she even makes it into that tree line far. I'm wondering why. What it is. Maybe it's the fact that he... Maybe because he wants more game. He wants to try to capture her later. Or maybe it's a respect yeah, thing. Maybe. And I know that sounds crazy. He just killed her family under the floorboards. The fact that she survived that has been hidden for so long. And now is running for her life. I wonder if there's a bit of a respect of like he let her go because he's complimenting her ability to survive. Like she made it out. Maybe, My men couldn't yeah. get her in close quarters. She's won her freedom kind of thing. I don't know. What's your take on that? Because that's, I thought about that today. I was like, why does he, I mean, I watched where she was running. like, that's countryside. There's nothing but tree like, like this. Space, she's yeah. running. She's going for a long time to hide from them. Like she has to continue to run for days. I mean, they could capture. I mean, he could have another glass of milk and still go out there and find her before she gets. You know, <laughs> it's not like it's like a thick forest. Also, and she can just like disappear right. into. You know, I mean, yeah. so there's woods and trees, but like we're not talking like she's just disappearing into a forest and hide out. They could have found her. Yeah. This is a very interesting question because I kind of wondered the same thing. Like I knew even I know shit about fucking guns. I know nothing. But even like looking, you're like, ah, there's no way he's going to fucking make that. You know what I mean? Like there's no there's no way he's going to hit yeah. her. Why, why even bother? Like when he doesn't shoot, you're like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. But as far as letting her go, yeah, I mean, it obviously backfires later for the whole realm of Germany. Absolutely. <laughs> by, by, by letting it go. So I don't However, know but a, it does work out like for a, him. Yeah. It's a yeah, fortuitous it, turn it for him. It does yeah. kind of work out for him. Yeah. I don't know if it's like a plot's got a plot kind of thing or it is like what you said. You know, it's kind of like a respect thing or uh, I mean, or it's like, hey, I won the game. So that's good enough for me. Killed most of them. Whatever. One gets away. Nah. And maybe uh, yeah. it is like, I'll, I'll get her later. You know, that kind of thing, too. I can see it going either way. Or maybe it's a mixture of all of them. You know, yeah. he's like, eh, eh, I got most of them. He's like, but we'll get her eventually, you know, which they kind of kind of do sort of. I mean, she survived, right? Like, like, like she shouldn't have survived. So she crawled across the dead bodies of her family to get out. Covered and in blood. And runs. Yes, so <laughs> covered in her family's blood <laughs> again without trying to make it sound like I'm just like ah oh, willy nilly about oh the Jewish you know plight of the 40s and not. But if she was able to do that, I think there's a part of him was kind of like you know what I'm gonna let you live, which I think then goes back to the fact that he doesn't hate Jews. She deserves it. He respects yeah. the fact that she survived that, and he's like you know what right. you've won your freedom. I've I've trapped you. I couldn't I couldn't have put you in an, a fish in a barrel scenario any better than this. We opened fire. How you survived I don't know, but you know what. You've won your freedom because of that. All right, so before we wrap this last up, I have just two questions. Or actually, well, it's kind of two questions. What do we think happens after that moment? <laughs> so he says, oh, wow, Shoshana. And we watch her run off and we fade to black. Does Londa keep his word right. and leaves the Lapadites alone? They drive off and that's that. And now the Lapadites have to live with this horrific, horrific tragedy and trauma that has now befell them, or does he kill them? Is he just a full-on liar and goes against his word and kill them? What do you think? Landa kept his word. Lapidites live with this tragedy for the rest of their, well, however long they live. Or he says, you know what? No, you harbored enemies of the state, and for that, you now will pay the price of death. Since he let her go, I would kind of see it's more in his character that he let them live. 
because letting them live with that horror and trauma that he just put them through, I think is enough yes, punishment. I, I agree. It's with almost you. Yeah. worse than death in a way. You know what I mean? Like th- there's kind of been this, this big thing where like death has to be the ultimate emotional moment. And I could literally not disagree more. There's so much more things that are so much more traumatizing than just because yes, death, death is final. Yes. That's it. Death is a- all your worldly worries are done. Right. It's over. Yeah. It sucks. But that's that. But even for people that are close to those people experiencing death to someone close, there yeah. are still things just as bad as death. Yes. Again, sometimes yes. worse than death. Because, like, again, like you said, death is final. So I feel like he left them with it, I think, would make more sense. And it was funny you mentioned something about, like, how most Tarantino movies are revenge and this is like one of the most emotionally like impactful moments and it's like i and this is obviously in ways a revenge movie as well it's all about kind of shoshana's revenge mm-hmm. and i guess the bastard's revenge too Cause, well because they're I, jewish guess. american soldiers but, so um, they're kind of getting revenge in right part right, right, for right. their uh the rest of the brethren yeah. who don't yeah exactly but it's like there's like a very a big i mean there is like kill bill and stuff like that too but yeah not not in a scene that that's kind of like unraveled over like a big period of time. This is like in the forefront and then it ties back later of, wow, this is really impactful. So it, it is a different way. He kind of does that kind of things. It's like some of the things he does normally, but he does it in a different way, almost in a smarter way than, than most of the other times he's done. But I do think he would let them live because I think that would be the more fucked up thing to do. In my opinion, like I think that's way yeah. more fucked up because if he kills yeah. them, they don't have to deal with it anymore. But if he leaves them with yeah. like, Hey, you were set out to protect these people. You didn't. <laughs> yeah. You probably did yeah. the right thing, saving your family. But still, you got to live with that shit. And that's not an easy thing to live with, especially when you're just like a simple farmer. On, you know, it's like, what the a fuck do you do? A other dairy than farmer. You're just stuck with your thoughts all day. Like, you know. How do you even make milk anymore after he's just oh tormented you with glass dude. of milk? I can just after imagine that, driving off, honking the, the horn. Place down. And in nice French, milk, going, my pipe is bigger than yours. <laughs> They're like, I love your totally. milk. Yeah. Really good milk. Uh, <laughs> if I was them, I'd burn down my fucking farm and start something new. I don't know. Yep. Do anything different. Jesus. Yep. yep. <laughs> start over. And that will do it for our first of two Bible studies this month. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Sean Mott, host of the Metal Core Nerds Podcast, for joining me today. Now, you can find the link to Sean's podcast and the show's socials in the show's notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, please join me again next week as Ryan Rebelkin, host of the Rocky Series Podcast, the worst of the best podcast, and it's a long road, the Rainbow Series Podcast, joins me once again for the second of our two Bible studies this month. We close things out by dissecting and discussing the La Louisiane Massacre scene from Inglorious Bastards. And don't forget to check out my newest side piece monthly podcast, The Cheeky Bastards, co-hosted by my good friend, Mr. Steve Smith. You can find the link to it in the show notes. So until next time, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.